This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And this is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And we will be joined in just a few moments by Chris Appy because we want you to know about what is happening with the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. First, we have a bit of a fish wrap for you. Today's newspaper is tomorrow's fish wrap. Front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette today, something in Springfield outside of the readership area. Really unusual for the recorder or the Daily Hampshire Gazette to do something like that. Top of the fold, two-thirds of the uh, top of the newspaper. And also, front page, not surprisingly, of the quite parochial Springfield Republican, big top-of-the-fold pictures with the headline, All Bets Are On, MGM Springfield Opens Legal Sports Betting. We have been discussing this in the studio before we went on the air and have almost unanimity here between Chris Appy and Buzz Eisenberg and Dan Torres. No one, none of you seem to like the idea of sports betting. Hey, Springfield is getting like $25 million a year from MGM, and sports betting is the next frontier. Massachusetts catching up to the surrounding states in terms of allowing people to bet. It probably buys some additional years of life for MGM Springfield. And Springfield has placed a big bet on MGM for their tax revenues, and you are naysayers. So, so let's start with you, Buzz Eisenberg. Uh, let's see. Um, I, I suppose what we should do is all be really grateful that people are transferring as much of their money as possible to MGM Springfield and the city of Springfield out of their hardworking uh, uh Proceeds of their hard work. And yes, and they'll, they'll create uh, gambling ad- addictions. They will c- cause disruption to families. They will f- essentially cause more disruption of lives of people who can ill afford to lose their money. Yeah, all that. I think it belongs right there above the f- above the fold, two-thirds of the front page, don't you? Well, Chris Happy. Well, you know, I know gambling can be f- fun, too fun for some people, unfortunately. You know, when I was a kid on Kentucky Derby Day— uh, Every one of us would throw in a quarter and pick out of a hat the name of a couple of horses, and the winner might get, you know, two and a half dollars. That was fun, but that this is. It is frightening <laughs> how popular it is. So I'm the moderator of the yeah. town of Ashfield, and our bylaw says the first Saturday in May, every year we have our annual town meeting. And round about three o'clock, and so we have wonderful discussion, wonderful discussion, wonderful discussion. And around about three o'clock, people keep sort of moving to close debate over and over until I realized it's Kentucky Derby Day and there's a whole bunch of junkies out there that have to watch the Derby. It drives me crazy. Here's the part of the story from the Gazette that I think is most both disturbing, interesting, and newsworthy. Sports betting kicks off at MGM Springfield, the headline being off to the races. There was a competition for what the headline should be between all bets are on and off to the races and so on. Here's the first graph. Mayor Dominic Sarno, this is Dateline Springfield, made history at 10 o'clock Tuesday morning when he put a $50 bet on the Philadelphia Eagles as they square off February 12th against the Kansas City Chiefs in Super Bowl 57 in Glendale, Arizona. Actually, really good lead. A lot of information in that first sentence. Congratulations to Emily Thurlow for writing it. (laughs) The MGA... Springfield Mayor's wager at Bet MGM Sportsbook and Lounge at MGM Springfield was the first legal in-person retail sports bet placed in the state. One last sentence, quote, big win for Springfield, big win for MGM Springfield, yeah, big win for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, not so sure about that, said Sarno as he hoisted his ticket during a launch event at the Springfield Casino. Well, groan. 
Well, I just want to turn our attention to something a little bit more meaningful in my book, which is today is the first day of African American History Month. And, um, you know, I know that uh, our friend, Dr. Amakar Shabazz, is receiving an award for his lifetime achievement uh, on behalf of uh, African American, um, well, recently, reparations. So uh, kudos to that. And I think over the course of the month, we'll be paying attention to this. Uh, one to, to one other thing you pointed out to me this morning, Buzz, a news story that has not yet gotten much attention but is about to. Why don't you give a little heads up to our listenership? That is right. The, the, the judge in Texas, a federal judge in Texas, who found that the um, DACA um, uh, policy that came into effect under the Obama administration was unconstitutional. Is he it, has a hearing today on it. DACA being the acronym for Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals. In other words, the dreamers who get to stay in the United States. and The ones who came here as a baby and had nothing to do with coming here, and now they've been living here and earned their college degrees, et cetera, et cetera, and now we want to kick them out. Yes, those people with a right-wing Republican judge in Texas having the say today. A Trump appointee who has as much, the only thing he should be doing on that bench is cleaning it in a janitorial costume. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Buzz. <laughs> <laughs> it's Wednesday. <laughs> we join, are joined by Chris Appy, uh, Christian Appy. Oh, I, by the way, I, before I cut my promo yesterday, I had been uh, texting back and forth with Christopher Pyle, who is a professor of government at Mount Holyoke College. So I did call you Christopher Appy. You, with your progressive politics, Chris, Christian Appy, you've probably been called much worse. But <laughs> my apologies in advance for getting that wrong. So Chris Appy. You got the last name right. Yeah, I got that part. Um, the, the, Chris Appy is a professor of history at UMass Amherst. He has received the Chancellor's Medal, the Distinguished Teaching Award, the Distinguished Graduate Mentor Award. He's the author of three books about the Vietnam War including American Reckoning, the Vietnam War, and Our National Identity. He is now writing a biography of Daniel Ellsberg with the working title, Ellsberg's Mutiny, War and Resistance in the Age of Vietnam, the Pentagon Papers, and Nuclear Terror. Chris Appy, I'm so pleased you could be with us today because there has been really exciting, really important news about the Ellsberg Initiative at UMass Amherst. Please tell us about that and what has happened recently. Thanks, Bill. First, let me just say a few words to introduce uh, Daniel Ellsberg to listeners, because although he was a household name for a couple of years in the early 1970s, most students come to my classes not knowing who he is, and even people my age and older need a refresher. Uh, in 1971, he, he became famous for leaking a 7,000-page um, set of top-secret documents that became known as the Pentagon Papers. This was a study of the war going back to the 40s through uh, the early 1968, uh, commissioned by Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. And uh, Ellsberg uh, went through an extraordinary uh, conversion in his views of the war. Al along with millions of Americans, he turned against the war, having started out supporting it. Uh, but by 1969, he had concluded that the war was not simply uh, uh, an unwinnable mistake, but had come to conclude that it was fundamentally unjust, even a crime, and had to be ended immediately, and asked himself what might he do if he were willing to sacrifice his career and perhaps even his personal freedom to try to help end the war. That's when he decided that he would leak uh, these papers, which exposed decades of governmental lies and deceit 
about the Vietnam War. He was uh, indicted with 12 felony uh, charges, uh, faced a possible 115-year prison sentence. And uh, near the end of, uh, and I would just add, he was the first since the Espionage Act, he was indicted under the Espionage Act, is very much in the news today. He was th the first uh, American uh, to be indicted under that act uh, for leaking to the American public and press, not to a foreign agent or, or country. That's become more common in our century with uh, the um, with the indictments of uh, Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning and Daniel Hale and other uh, whistleblowers. So uh, he did go to trial, but it, uh, it, uh, near the end of the trial, the uh, Watergate investigations uh, revealed the fact that the White House had uh, n not only uh, charged him with uh, you know, criminal uh, wrongdoing, uh, but uh, sicked a group of thugs uh, known as the uh, plumbers, because plumbers plugged leaks, to go after Ellsberg to try to silence him because the Nixon administration worried that he might have documents about him as, as well as this earlier history. And so they broke into the offices of his psychiatrist uh, that was exposed and found, and the judge really uh, at that point had no recourse but to throw the case out. Uh, so uh, Dan Ellsberg did not do... Um, prison time, but he did spend the next 50 years right up to the present. He's 91 years old and as active as ever. Uh, he's been arrested more than 80 times for acts of nonviolent civil disobedience uh, in opposition to um, new U.S. nuclear policies and other and foreign policies. Um, so he's a fascinating guy to study and to teach uh, to, this, to new generations of students. I've heard him speak recently. He is still inspiring. He is still a mentor to millions and millions of people. He has a relationship now with UMass Amherst. Let's start there, and then we'll get to the, what is happening today with the Ellsberg Initiative. Yeah, that, that relationship, although he had lectured at UMass for decades before, it really began in earnest in uh, 2019 when UMass acquired his extraordinary collection of papers, this treasure trove of some 500 boxes of, of stuff, of, of material. That yeah, someone's so got to sort yeah, out and put in a... Borderline <laughs> hoarder. And we, fortunately, <laughs> we do have an archivist uh, whose entire job is to oversee the processing of these papers. Um, so uh, once uh, UMass acquired those papers, it took me about two minutes to decide that I wanted to write a biography uh, of him. And more than that, to plan a series of, of great events. It was, it was collaborating with other people. We, we, we ran a one a year-long seminar for advanced undergraduates and a few graduate students called Truth, Descent, and the Life of Daniel Ellsberg. So those st students were really the, the first to explore those papers. And it, it was, it sounds a little hyperbolic, but it was really a life-changing experience for a number of those uh, students. And you have to remember, we, when he did it, we were doing it at the height of the pandemic. We were about the only class allowed on campus because they had to be there to go through the papers. So we were, before the vaccinations, we were all masked up, socially distancing. Uh, and it was, that was the year where all this stuff was happening. On top of the pandemic, you had the unexpected to many uh, rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. You had the, the presidential election and the big lie about it, followed by the insurrection of January 6th, uh, 21, and the second uh, impeachment trial of, of, of Donald Trump. So students are living that current history, which isn't exactly like the late 60s and early 70s, but it allowed them to really connect with and find relevance in that earlier history to the sort of turmoil 
of our, of our own times. And I just want to throw one, one other fact in with your incredibly, I wish I could speak so articulately about <laughs> a complicated matter as you just did, but what we did pass on is that the Pentagon Papers case, that is United States versus New York Times and Washington Post, where those papers were published so the American people could learn the history of that conflict, that was an incredibly important case in terms of the First Amendment. Yeah, that, too, was unprecedented, as uh, Attorney Newman would know. This was the first time in U.S. history that the federal government had issued um, an injunction, uh, an, uh, a, prior, a prior, prior restraint order to try to stop the presses to keep them from publishing a specific uh, set of articles uh, that quickly went to the Supreme Court uh, that ruled 6-3 in favor of the press and the papers were continued to be published. But one thing that most people uh, don't know is it wasn't just the New York Times and the Washington Post, but 17 other newspapers defied the Nixon White House and, and, and published pieces of it. Which is part of the reason that the New York Times and the Washington Post won, because at the Supreme Court, it was argued and the court adopted this. Well, listen, they've been published all across the country already. Why would an injunction against the New York Times yeah, or the Washington yeah, Post? Horses out of the barn. <laughs> That was, in fact, a significant part of the rationale for the decision. And we should credit Ellsberg, who thought the government would do exactly what it did, which is try to enjoin the publication in the Post and the Times. And so he was responsible for giving the Pentagon Papers to a dozen-plus publications. Yeah, that's why he stayed underground. For He knew the FBI was, was looking for him. But he stayed underground for 13 days before turning himself in at the Boston courthouse because he needed those 13 days to, uh, to, to distribute uh, these papers to all these newspapers. But the beautiful part of that opinion, and you're right, Bill, in, in the importance of the fact that it had been published by other uh, outlets, but it, it was that it was really just telling an honest history. It, this is how we got to where we, we are in Vietnam, and that's what those papers represented. They were classified for no good reason because they were just telling the truth. This, well, and they were historical, really. They had, there was no, the, the government... Uh, the, the ruling, the Supreme Court ruling, the, the heart of it was that the, the government had failed to demonstrate that the uh, publication of these papers represented uh, any significant threat to uh, U.S. national security. There was an, it, really, it named no, it jeopardized, put no one in jeopardy, it revealed no important codes. Um, it, it was really already effectively history. And, that, and Ellsberg and others would say that the overclassification is just, it's worse than ever now. I mean, probably more than 99% of material that's classified sh shouldn't be. And the rest of it should be, uh, y you know, open within a matter of years. We should probably also point out that the Pentagon Papers was not the name of the document. This was a study conducted by the Defense Department, by the, of the United States government, to look at our history of involvement with Vietnam and they were embarrassed on yeah. what they discovered. But this was not some left-wing cabal yeah. taking on the U.S. government. This was a— John McNamara. This was, yeah, this was the, the government itself analyzing what the government had done over the course of five or six presidential <laughs> different presidents. And goodness, uh, they were just—the government was just embarrassed. They didn't want the world to know mm. about what we had done. Chris Appy, we got to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to continue this conversation. And for our listeners, we want you to know about the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy, which C Professor Chris Appy is really involved with and is spearheading at UMass Amherst. You want to hear this, and we'll be right back. 
Well, the sergeant said it's time to train, so I climbed aboard my helicopter plane. We flew above the battleground, a sniper tried to shoot us down. He must have forgot we're only trainees. Them commies never fight fair. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. There's the Sauvignon Blanc side and the salami sandwich side, the brick and feather beer side and the broccoli side, the deli side and the Don Julio side. State Street in Northampton has two sides, grocery on one side, beer, wines and spirits on the other. Cooper's Corner in Florence has two sides, grocery on one side, beer, wines and spirits on the other. But the nice thing about State Street and Cooper's, you don't have to pick a side. You can choose both sides at both stores. The world feels so divided sometimes. For once, don't choose sides. Go to both sides, at both stores. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits in Northampton and Cooper's Corner on the other side of Northampton in Florence. Two sides, same coin. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We continue our conversation with UMass history professor Chris Appy, Christian Appy, the author of a number of books on Vietnam, including one of my favorites, American Reckoning, the Vietnam War and Our National Identity. Chris Appy, you are very involved in the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy at UMass. Tell us what it is, why it came about, and more impo- most importantly for our purposes today, what just happened that's so very exciting? Well, we really wanted to build on the momentum of these projects I was uh, describing, this year-long seminar, the creation of this fabulous website called the Ellsberg Archive Project, and a, a, a two-day online international conference that we held uh, at the end of April and early May uh, 2021 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the release of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, Ellsberg participated, Edward Snowden joined us uh, from uh, Russia in a panel moderated by Amy Goodman, Uh, lots of prominent activists, scholars, journalists, former policymakers. Those recordings are all uh, of of that conference are all on that um, uh, Ellsberg archive project. So uh, my thought was how, how could we create something permanent 
to, to keep moving forward to introduce students and the public to the papers and the significance and legacy of Ellsberg's life. So I went to my dean and then soon the chancellor with a proposal to create the Ellsberg uh, Initiative for Peace and Democracy. The goal is uh, to actually create a permanent institute, but in university life, until you get the funding you need to fully endow a project, you, ha you can call yourself an initiative, uh, but ultimately we, we do want it to be an institute. But we, we, have, to f we have to raise about $15 million uh, to, to create an annual operating budget of 600000 Better get um, that sports betting underway. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said anything <laughs> bad about the sports. <laughs> I, I would like to ask you this. I was looking on the website of the uh, Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy, and among the very interesting statements in that document uh, is this. The initiative, meaning the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy, will deliver a vibrant portfolio of mission-based programs. What does that mean, mission-based? Well, we don't want to be a kind of uh, inward-looking, uh, narrowly scholastic institute where experts are really just talking to each other. I mean, there's some value in that, and we do want to advance scholarship on these key issues. Uh, of, uh, but our, our mission is really to, be, uh, to raise public awareness as well as scholarship and activism. That's sort of the mission point. Uh, around uh, the, um, the key issues that are so essential to Ellsberg's legacy, which include uh, peace, uh, anti-militarism, government accountability, uh, public interest whistleblowing, nuclear disarmament, uh, and uh, social and environmental justice. I mean, Ellsberg has been talking about climate change since the uh, late 1980s. So, it's what I think is different, if not completely, if not unique, but I may be unique. Uh, this is an institute that brings together all, all, all these different issues, uh, peace, threats to democracy, um, climate change, uh, nuclear issues. I mean, you, there are institutes around the country and world devoted to one or another of those topics, but we're interested in... Um, informing and engaging the public and thinking about the, inter the connections between all these issues. When you look back on Ellsberg's very long, very productive life, where, well, a pivot point clearly was his anti-war activism, his being influenced greatly by Randy Keeler, who we were talking about during the break, uh, and that story is really quite remarkable. Randy Keeler organized Dan Ellsberg and told him why he was going to prison in opposition to the war. And it really, that really turned Ellsberg's life around in a very significant way. What I'd Maybe like I should tell that story. Sure, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, just br briefly, um, as Dan was changing his mind about the war, he attended uh, a War Resisters League m meeting in uh, Haverford, Pennsylvania in August of 69, and was um, meeting a lot of young anti-war activists and draft resistors. One of them was then 24-year-old Randy Keeler, uh, who uh, spoke to, to, to the audience about his decision to resist the draft and, and to do it in a way that put him in jeopardy of, of prison, as opposed to trying to get conscious objection or going to Canada. Randy Keeler, we should point out for listeners who don't know, is a longtime Franklin County resident. And right. So, and, and a co-founder of the nuclear freeze movement and many other uh, projects. Uh, well, he spoke so eloquently about his decision to go to prison 
that uh, Ellsberg in the back of the room found himself just overcome with emotion and uh, left and went off to the men's room and says he really sobbed uncontrollably for a, a long time, asking him this uh, sort of feeling as if we, the country was eating its young, both by sending them off to war in Vietnam or in rel or, and relying on them to lead the way in, in, in trying to bring it to an end. So he asked himself, what might I do if I were willing to take the same kind of risks that Randy Keeler is? And it was th at that moment where he really began to, to, th to think seriously about photocopying the Pentagon Papers, which he had access to because he had been a part of the group of people that had compiled them. And he, he still was working at the Rand Corporation uh, think tank in, in California and, and had it in his safe. So, you know, uh, starting uh, on October 1st, 1969, uh, he, he took portions of the papers out of his office and uh, in the, at late at night, uh, Xeroxed copies of it at uh, a, fr a, a young friend uh, of his, uh, Linda Sine at the time, uh, who, who had a small advertising firm and, and uh, was also against the war. Yeah, and we should point out that uh, Ellsberg was looking at the rest of his life potentially in prison under the Espionage Act. Correct. Was, he really thought he was. He, he, he thought, he was pretty convinced, smart as he was, he was sure that he had done something that was criminally indictable. As it turns out, um, his lawyers were telling him he, he actually may not have broken a, a, a law. But he assumed he was. <laughs> he assumed he Which was, was a good, yeah, good yeah. assumption. And he might still have been convicted, but we really don't know. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but also point out that part of the story that always moves me is how Randy explained to Ellsberg why he was going to prison voluntarily for having destroyed his draft card as part of his anti-war activism, how important that was, and with the courage that Randy Keeler showed that inspired Daniel Ellsberg. I'd like to ask you, I'd like to go back in the few minutes we have left, if I might, Chris Happy, uh, ask you what's next with regard to the Ellsberg Initiative? What can we look forward to? Because well, you just announced yeah. you're going to raise $15 million. <laughs> well, if anyone wants to support us, yeah, I, would, I would simply say that uh, small contributions are uh, very valuable uh, in and of themselves. Everything adds up. But they're also crucial because they demonstrate to people who do have the capacity to make more significant donations that there is a base of support for this project. So if you want to learn more, if you'll f forgive the plug, if you just Google uh, Ellsberg Initiative, you come to a website and there is a, a place where you can make a donation. But we have a very ambitious five-year plan of programming and have actually begun this year in collaboration with the UMass History Department uh, as co-sponsors of uh, a series of year-long events called Confronting Empire um, about U.S. imperialism. Uh, and we, uh, just a couple months ago, had the inaugural Ellsberg Lecture that was given by uh, Azmat Khan, who, who came and talked on the Bill's show uh, in November. She is Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist who wrote a series of articles in the New York Times on the civilian casualties of U.S. drone and bombing uh, strikes. So uh, next year we've got a whistleblower project uh, that will be followed by uh, a, a year of, of of programming on uh, government secrecy and surveillance, oh, or, or uh, maybe threats to democracy is the third year, uh, then secrecy and surveillance, and then a, a year-long program on existential threats, focusing on 
climate change and nuclear weapons. And that each year there'll be some mixing and matching to try to, again, show the overlap of these issues, but there'll be a, a key theme for each year. And these programs are open to the public. You don't have to be a UMass. Absolutely. They'll all be either... Uh, Many of them will be hybrid events, so that there'll be some in-person local component where people can attend, but they'll also be available online so people around the world can see it, um, which is one of the things I think the pandemic taught us is this is a real, you know, out of necessity, that conference that we did, which was online, has reached more than 25,000 people around the world. I've listened to parts of those recordings. You know, Chris Happy, like Daniel Ellsberg, I, I am so grateful to what you're doing as an historian, what Daniel Ellsberg did in demonstrating what the history that brought us into that morass we call the Vietnam War, and what you're doing to remind people of when we stand on your shoulders and look down, what the world looked like then and how it compares to what the world looks like now. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And I take it from what you've been telling us that the work of the initiative, which will become more formalized and more permanent in the creation with the creation of the Institute, the Daniel Ellsberg Institute, but the work has already started. The presentations are alive and well, and you are doing this work today. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Chris Appy, professor of history at UMass Amherst. And do you have a title for the Ellsberg Initiative that we can share? Um, or just mover and shaker? Oh, I'm the director. <laughs> okay, got it. <laughs> the director of the Ellsberg Initiative for Peace and Democracy. Chris Appy, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate Thank it. Thank you all. Yeah. Though it isn't really war, we're sending 50,000 more to help save Vietnam from Vietnamese. I jumped off the old troop ship and sank in mud up to my hips. I cussed until the captain called me down. Never mind how hard it's raining. Think of all the ground we're gaining. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A 27-year-old Northampton man found dead in Chesterfield more than a month ago died from multiple gunshot wounds to the head and torso, along with multiple blunt force injuries, according to a copy of the death certificate obtained by the Gazette on Tuesday. Jonathan Latondra's death is listed as a homicide on the certificate issued by the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner in Boston. Latondra was a Northampton resident who worked as a general manager at a Dunkin' Donuts location. He was killed on December 26 near South Street in Chesterfield. A Northwestern District Attorney's Office spokesperson confirmed the circumstances of Latondra's death remains under investigation and that no charges have been filed in the case. Northampton is launching a new Climate Action Department. Mayor Gina Louise Shera made the announcement at a joint meeting with the City Council and School Committee last night. Shera says the department, with careful planned use of the Climate Change Mitigation Stabilization Funds, will guide the city's efforts to realize the goals outlined in the Sustainable Northampton Comprehensive Plan. The order must still be approved by City Council in order to be officially created. Shera also provided an update of the financial condition of Northampton going into the 2024 fiscal year. A tractor-trailer caught fire on 261 Elm Street in Holyoke this morning. The fire was quickly put out with minimal damage to the vehicles that were parked next to it. The cause of the fire is being investigated by Holyoke Fire and Police Department and the Massachusetts State Police. 
partly to mostly sunny today, a little breezy with a high of only 28 to 32. Scattered clouds tonight, evening temperatures in the 20s, overnight lows of 12 to 18. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, a little warmer with a high of 34 to 38. Then the big chill comes in for Friday, mostly sunny highs in the low 20s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La vicepresidenta Kamala Harris asistirá este miércoles al funeral de Tyree Nichols, el hombre negro que murió tres días después de que la policía de Memphis lo golpeara salvajemente luego de una parada de tráfico a principios de este mes, dijo la Casa Blanca el martes. Nichols será elogiado por el reverendo Al Sharpton en un servicio en la Iglesia Cristiana Mississippi Boulevard en Memphis el miércoles por la mañana. También asistirán los familiares de Breonna Taylor y George Floyd, quienes fueron asesinados por la policía en Louisville, Kentucky y Minneapolis, Minnesota en 2020. Mientras tanto, el fiscal de distrito del condado de Shelby, Steve Mulroy, dijo el martes que los fiscales podrían presentar más cargos penales contra los policías y otras personas en relación con la golpiza fatal de Nichols luego de las crecientes críticas sobre cómo la oficina de Mulroy y el departamento de policía de Memphis han manejado el caso. En un comunicado en Twitter, el fiscal de distrito Mulroy dijo que otros oficiales, el personal del departamento de bomberos y otras personas que prepararon la documentación del incidente también pueden enfrentar cargos penales a medida que haya más información disponible. En otras informaciones, el presidente de Estados Unidos, Joe Biden, y el presidente de la Cámara de Representantes, Kevin McCarthy, no asistirán a su primera reunión sobre el aumento del techo de la deuda con propuestas específicas para evitar un posible incumplimiento, indicaron ambas partes el martes. En cambio, es probable que la reunión de este miércoles entre Biden y McCarthy sirva como la campanada de apertura de meses de maniobras de ida y vuelta para aumentar el límite de endeudamiento de Estados Unidos de 31.4 billones de dólares. Ninguna de las partes muestra signos de que estén dispuestos a negociar algo por el momento. Es posible que no surjan propuestas detalladas durante varias semanas. Yo soy Johan Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We are joined in the studio by Northampton City Councilor Garrick Perry. He is my city councilor. He is the Ward 4 City Councilor. And we wanted to have Councilor Perry join us this morning because we want to continue the conversation about the vote in the Northampton City Council recently that passed by 6 to 3. That's a supermajority enough to override the mayor's veto, should it hold, if she should veto the ordinance, which I do not know. But the ordinance itself is about limiting the number of pot shops in Northampton. Yark Perry, you opposed the ordinance. Tell us why. Yeah, uh, first of all, thank you again for having me on the show, Bill and Buzz. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, and as you stated, this recent vote was, um, you know, it, it passed on the supermajority. And, and I, I was against it. Not that I am against a cap but I am against this ordinance uh, in, in the current state that it was in, um, mostly because I, I feel, and I think you've said this before, that this ordinance does not get to the heart or solve any of the problems um, which it claims to address. Um, a, a lot of the discussion was behind youth usage and uh, the understanding that the density of 
marijuana shops leads to increased usage. Um, for me, this ordinance does not change the density. We currently, will, we have 11, the cap is at 12, um, and right now it does not lower the, the number of dispensaries in Northampton. Uh, the second part is that this ordinance also had a social equity component. Um, and while I think that there needs to be some sort of reparations or look at what marijuana laws have done to certain communities, I don't think that this ordinance does anything to address that. Um, it does not make it easier for social equity candidates to um, apply. It doesn't offer any assistance. Uh, it really just could be used, um, as, as some councilors have stated, as a loophole, as a way for a social equity candidate to go past, you know, if we were at 12, someone could apply for a social equity license, get it, and then turn around and sell it to someone else. So those are the reasons why I uh, opposed it. Um, as well as the fact that when it comes to equity, I do feel that it is important to look at the fact that there are uh, only three wards where there are marijuana dispensaries. Uh, we have seven wards in Northampton, and uh, disproportionately, these are falling into our downtown. And when I think of equity, I think of people having access or you know the the ability to to go to some of these dispensaries. Uh, and and we're we're in essence locking in these dispensaries, in these positions, in these places. I would like to understand more about the rationale. for, And I know you're opposed, but six of your uh, brother and sister counselors voted for this. It is an ordinance that, as you point out, uh, Garrick Perry, will restrict the number of licenses or marijuana retail dispensaries in Northampton to 12. There are now 11. The complaint is that the what you call the density, but the prevalence of pot shops in Northampton somehow influence youth to engage more with marijuana. And what I don't understand is how tw 11 is just fine, but 12, the world falls in. And oh, by the way, there are pot shops in the towns surrounding Northampton. They are ubiquitous. Uh, they will be part of the landscape forever. But somehow, if we only have 12 as opposed to 11, that will decrease youth use of marijuana. And this, to me, makes no logical sense at all. It, to me, it was like a political, well, uh, I, don't, I don't want to characterize it that way, as a political uh, phenomenon, event. Uh, somehow, we are opposed to prevalence of pot shops. Great. But it does absolutely no good because it's not going to reduce the density. It doesn't intend to reduce the density of pot shops. And at the same time, it has a number of potentially really negative effects in terms of people being able to sell licenses, hoard licenses, invite out-of-state uh, uh, big corporations to take them over. So uh, explain to me, if you can, why 12 is just fine, but... 13 would be horrible, not that there will be a 13th. I, I just don't get it. Well, that's a good question, and I, I don't have an answer. I, I, I also grasp um, to, to understand why 12 was the magic number. Um, well, it's it, because we had 12 and now well, we had 11. Exactly. Um, you know, for, for me, I think that, and I think Councilor Foster said this when she was here, is that, um, you know, if we go back in time, we could have set a cap back then, but we, we're, we're past that. And a lot of what I am seeing is, is Northampton looking back into the past, where I really think that we should be looking towards the future. Um, as you, you've stated before, um, you know, social consumption is down the pipeline. We, we've got a lot uh, to, to kind of digest and work towards. And 
right now, this ordinance for me does not do that. Um, there is a lot of feeling behind this issue. Um, and, and I think that kind of motivated a, a lot of things. There was a strong outcry from, from a, a portion of our population. You know, I won't say overwhelming, but there are some people who spoke up. And a lot of this was around youth consumption and youth usage. And you know, it comes back to the fact that this ordinance does not change the, the number. It, it, in effect, leaves us, locks us in to 12. Did you, um, Garrick Perry, have an ordinance in mind which you think would fit the bill for you? I, so I did not have one, um, you know, because I, I fall into the category that I think this market is kind of settling itself out. Um, I, I've had the pleasure of talking to a number of the dispensary owners, and I've visited a number of these dispensaries. And, you know, I could see the way that the market is going. I've seen from people having a number of security at the door to reducing that to, you know, reducing employees. Um, you know, I, I have friends and, and colleagues who also are working at these dispensaries. So... I have an understanding of where we are. Um, you know, this is a brand new industry for Northampton, for our city, and you know things are going to shake out. And and my issue again is, you know, most of my life I I, I came here. I, I've lived here for twenty years. I've been in the entertainment and um, service industry, and I've watched in the especially in the entertainment industry in Northampton as our caps on liquor licenses have affected. The community—it's affected, um, you know, how how venues run, how new businesses are able to open because of the overpriced value on our liquor licenses. Um, I really worry about creating a secondary market. I know people have talked about this, um, but we run the risk of, uh, you know, stag stagnating this new industry. Um, I think it will cause some people to be complacent, uh, and you know, if if. I owned a dispensary that was failing, and I knew that my license was going to be worth more. The first thing I would do was get on the phone and talk to some multi-state operators, let them know I have a turnkey operation here. I, you know, I've, I have a spot in downtown Northampton. All the work has been done. All you need to do is is buy me out. Um, and so I, I think that for me, that is one of the big issues. Um, you know, if you know, no one can predict the future, but I truly believe that given this the opportunity this market will level out, you know. I, I want to ask about the equity piece of this. And I have two questions in that regard. One is, is it at all realistic to think that some equity-approved uh, potential owner and proprietor would actually come to Northampton? There hasn't been a new application for a, a host community agreement for over a year. And the market seems to be reducing the number by itself. One, one dispensary just closed. And this ordinance creates a uh, secondary market in, in, the, uh, in, in the licensing themselves, which I think is a serious downside. So I would like to know whether or not this inclusion of the equity piece was really there as sort of a political sweetener. See, we are standing for equity and we're in persons who are low income and those who have been hurt by the war on drugs. Got it as a statement, but it's not really very likely at all that there will be a new dispensary owned by a, a, a person of color, someone whose community has been ravaged by the war on drugs. It's really, really unlikely to happen. So there's, I don't see the benefit and the downside risk of the secondary market and licenses, I think that's very dangerous. 
Am I missing anything here? I don't. I don't think so. And and to go back to Buzz, your question about if I had an, an ordinance in mind, I I fall under the the belief that I think that this would have been a good resolution. You know, we, we make resolutions to show our intent, and there's a lot of talk about um, societal norms, and and there has been this sense that my fellow counselors want to make a stand and show that they are for the youth, that they, um, you know, they, they they want to, I guess, prove to our community that we take this issue seriously. I don't think this ordinance is the way to do that because, again, it doesn't address any of the issues, um, but it does make a statement. And to go to the social equity key piece, um, we all know that starting one of these dispensaries has high costs, um, you know, and, and takes years. You know, we're, the, the amount of money and operating costs really out of the gate separates it from a lot of people. Um, I, I also think that because we have not seen any social equity candidates, except for the one we have, um, if, I, if I was looking to come to a market, I would see Northampton and see, well, they already have 12. Why would I come to this community? Um, you know, if, if Where one shop has just closed and gone out of business. Exactly. Um, so, so I think that uh, at its surface, these are, these are great ideas. We, we, we want to be aware and we want to, to have some semblance of control of this market. Um, and we also want to, to address and note that certain communities have been impoverished and disenfranchised because of uh, marijuana laws and drug laws. Two quick observations. One is you didn't need to put these two proposals together in one ordinance. You could have passed a social equity marijuana cannabis uh, uh, ordinance and left it at that. You didn't have to have something that limits the numbers of dispensaries. They didn't have to be put together. They just didn't. Um, the other, we need to take a quick break, but I, we'll come back. I, I want to ask you this. What it seems to me, again, is that this is a political statement. And as you say, a resolution would have been, I think, much more appropriate and I think philosophically, what we have here is really kind of an East versus West uh, dichotomy, which is sort of the general uh, Western approaches, just don't sit there, do something, as opposed to an East, more Eastern approach, just don't do something, sit there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Corsello Butcheria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Corsello Butcheria, the Italian-style butcher shop in East Hampton. The inspiration is a small family-run butcher shop in Rome. The meat is from local farmers they know and trust. Stop in for steaks and sausages, chops or chicken, or just a sandwich. Corsello Butcheria in East Hampton. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. It happens all over Massachusetts. Anytime I choose. In every home and every community. Be careful on your bike. Learning can happen anytime, anywhere. Hi guys. We'll see you practice this weekend. And no matter how learning takes place in your family's life, Desi is there as your partner. The Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. Never stop learning. 
Find out more at mass.gov slash back to school. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Department for Elementary and Secondary Education. Are you organized, detail-oriented, responsible, fun-loving, and a team player? The Northampton Radio Group is looking for you. We've currently got an opening for a part-time office assistant. The job is right out front, so you have to like people. A knowledge of Microsoft Office is essential, and a sense of humor is a must. Send your resume and cover letter to Office Position, Northampton Radio Group, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Mass., 01060. Or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer. I chose community mental health to serve populations that are often underserved. Megan is a therapist at ServiceNet. One core value at ServiceNet is to continue to learn to really strive for the most effective treatment. If you're looking for a strong sense of community and collaboration, come to ServiceNet. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. Need a ride to the doctor? Tech support? Pictures hung? Looking to connect with others in the community? At Northampton Neighbors, our goal is to help seniors live independent, fulfilling lives by providing connection and support along the way. We are free of charge and offer a range of social and volunteer opportunities, as well as services for members 55 and older in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. Membership in Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. It's about engaging in place. This place, the city of Northampton, we welcome one and all to join, volunteer, or donate to Northampton Neighbors. Together, we can create the community we all want to live in, now and in the future. Find us at NorthamptonNeighbors.org or by calling 413-341-0160. Thank you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We continue our conversation with Northampton Ward 4 City Councilor Garrick Perry. We are talking about the new ordinance passed by the City Council to limit the number of pot shops. Uh, is that an okay way to refer to the uh, uh, retail uh, cannabis industry? I, I always wonder what the, the, the preferred nomenclature is of that would be. <laughs> okay. Okay. Retail cannabis can- dispensary. There you go. Okay. Sounds there, more professional. There we go. So... I, one other aspect of this that I don't quite understand, we have uh, uh, many more liquor stores and bars in Northampton than we have uh, retail cannabis shops. Um, is there any mo- movement afoot to say let's limit the number of package stores or limit the number of bars and restaurants that uh, dispense alcohol? You know, a lot of people have been bringing up the, the comparisons, and, and I, I too, I think it's you know it's true. You can walk down the street and you see a number of package stores and we really don't um, discuss that as much as we should um, but that's because it's become kind of second nature to us um, and I think again there's there's growing pains in any new industry so a lot of the pushback I feel um, comes from the feeling that we have too many marijuana dispensaries um, and, and I agree I, I think that we, we do like our market is oversaturated but it'll work itself out. Part of the argument for this ordinance is we have, or Northampton has, a statistically a relatively high rate of youth marijuana usage. Um, what I don't know is how that compares to youth alcohol usage in other in other communities. And it seems to me that uh, the argument 
altogether misses the point, which is you're going to create a, a market in these in in these permits, um, which can't could be really bad for the city. Well, I, I, one thing I do want to say is that. Um, I want to thank all the sponsors for for putting forth this legislation just for opening up the conversation. A good conversation, absolutely. One of the the things I love about Northampton is that, you know, we don't shy away from debates. You know, we are able to process these very nuanced conversations um, well. But, again, I think that some of this does come from the feeling that we should do something. I think that we need to be more forward-thinking. We've talked about social consumption, all these things. Um, I look forward to having those debates of how we can really integrate uh, the marijuana industry into our community. Because as you said, it's not going away. Um, I would like us to be more forward-thinking in how um, you know we can both educate folks, but also how we can look at um, being a leader in the marijuana industry. We were the first place where there was a dispensary, and I, I see a, a great... Um, uh, benefit to this industry, to our city. Well, I think we are going to leave it there. We have been speaking with Northampton Ward 4 City Council, Garrick Perry. We've been talking about the ordinance, which is in front of the mayor now. She can either not sign it, and it will eventually become law under its own, uh, under the rules of the council and the city, um, or she could veto and we'd go back to this council to see if that 6-3 supermajority would hold. We'll find out about that in the coming days. Thank you so much, Garrick Perry, for your time, your interest, your representation. Thanks for being my ward for a counselor. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Me. an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, health care, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps Live you create local a better news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's